Welcome to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. My name's Tammy Simon. I'm the founder of Sounds True, and I'd love to take a moment to introduce you to the new Sounds True Foundation. The Sounds True Foundation is dedicated to creating a wiser and kinder world by making transformational education widely available. We want everyone to have access to transformational tools such as mindfulness, emotional awareness, and self-compassion, regardless of financial, social, or physical challenges. The Sounds True Foundation is a nonprofit dedicated to providing these transformational tools to communities in need, including at-risk youth, prisoners, veterans, and those in developing countries. If you'd like to learn more or feel inspired to become a supporter, please visit SoundsTrueFoundation.org. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today, my guest is Veronica Valley. Veronica is a former psychotherapist who now works as a sobriety coach. With almost 20 years of experience, she has helped thousands of people live happy, healthy, sober, full lives and reach their full potential being alcohol-free. She's been the keynote speaker at annual conferences such as Women for Sobriety and Soberistas, and she's the co-host of the popular Soberful podcast. With Sounds True, Veronica Valley is releasing a new book. It's called Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Whatever notions we might have confirmed by our culture at large, that drinking alcohol helps us feel more connected to other people, more in tune with our authentic self. For some people that may be true, but Veronica shows that for many people that's not the case. And she helps us see that we can actually be really connected, really enjoy ourselves, really be authentic, and be soberful all at the same time. Here's my conversation with someone who's normalizing the choice to be alcohol-free and helping people who are suffering recover from an addiction to alcohol, the very helpful and practical Veronica Valley. To begin, Veronica, I'd love to know more about how you became a sobriety coach. To be honest with you, I'd never even known previous to this conversation that there was such a thing as a sobriety coach. <laughs> um, well, yeah, that's. I'll try and condense that as much as possible. I was a, in the UK. I was a psychotherapist, so I had a private practice in the UK. I worked in rehabs and and had a practice at Holly Street and blah blah blah, and um, came to America eleven something years ago, and had to do a whole bunch more studying, etc., to be able to work as a psychotherapist. And I kind of at the same time came to the realization that I probably didn't want to be a traditional psychotherapist, you know, in the way that I had. And that coaching really began to suit my personality. It's a lot more, I don't know, it's kind of faster. It's, it, it really, um, it, it, I would say sober coaching has taken off in the last few years. It's, it's a, it's a, 
you know, it's a modality. It's a great way to help people who are suffering from alcohol problems. Um, so I just kind of moved towards that. It just fitted me better. I was able to do it. I was able to be flexible with my business and, and work with people all over the world. Um, and yeah, I just kind of like moved into it. It was a very natural progression, really. You, um, I'm seeing more and more recovery coaches, sober coaches pop up all over the place now. Mm -hmm. Now you had your own journey, uh, mm. more than 20 years ago in becoming sober. Can you tell us about that? What was happening before how you became mm. sober and what that journey was like for you? Yeah, so um, I got sober relatively young. I was 27 and um, I drank for maybe 12 years, um, but most of that was pretty awful. So I always, you know, I never drank normally from my first drink was um, what I would describe as quite alcoholic. I never had an off button. I have a memory of being 15 years old in... Um, a bar in my hometown and going into blackout and then waking up outside the bar in the gutter covered in my own vomit with the landlord throwing a bucket of water over me and wow. I remember having this like thought in my head thinking there's something wrong with this and but culturally I was surrounded by messages and people that said to me you had a really good time like mm -hmm. you are crazy like you're a crazy party girl. So it, I had this one thought in my head where I was thinking, this isn't right. But everything around me told me the opposite, that everything around me messaged that that was fun. And I really absorbed that. I liked the identity of being this kind of wild party girl living on the edge. I loved that. So, um, and for me, I mean, before I even drank, I felt very uncomfortable in my own skin. I didn't feel good enough. I didn't like myself very much. So I had a very classic experience, which a lot of people who have serious alcohol problems had. When I first tried alcohol, it was a light bulb going on. It fixed how I felt. That's the big thing. It fixed how I felt about myself. And it was it was the solution. You know, I felt confident and beautiful and fun and crazy. And I had a great time from about 15 to 18, which is about 18 is the legal drinking age in the UK. And then I, I was also doing drugs. I never had an off, like I never, I never had any like question. If you gave me something, I took it. I didn't ask what it is or what it did or anything like that. And I had um, a bad trip on magic mushrooms and went into uh, drug induced psychosis where I was having auditory hallucinations. Mm. I was suicidal mm. and I couldn't tell anyone. Like, I didn't know how to put that into words. Like, I didn't know. Like, I, I, I think that I thought at the time, if I say it out loud what's happening, then it's really happening. And maybe one day I'll just wake up and it'll all go away. Um, but that really shifted my drinking from being, you know, partying to drinking to cope. I very quickly, I didn't stop using any illegal drugs, but alcohol I could use that before a social event, and 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 it, I um, as a consequence of the drug-induced psychosis, I had really bad anxiety and panic attacks, really crippling panic attacks. So then I spent ten, almost ten years, nine years, trying to cope with these feelings inside of me, which nobody knew about, of paranoia, fear, terror, not feeling good enough feeling very unsafe all of the time, 
desperately trying to find the solution, trying to find the thing that fixed me and using alcohol as the solution, which obviously escalated and caused its own problems. Um, and I was always looking for help. I was going to doctors and psychiatrists and psychologists and churches, and reading self-help books, anything that offered kind of some kind of solution. And, and it was really kind of a whole accident how I got sober. I was, uh, I had come up with this rationalization. I, I, my panic attacks were often triggered by being in groups of people. And I, I just thought I can't have a job where I'm with groups of people. I have to have a job that's one-on-one -on -one, um, because I, I could cope with that. And my local college um, had a, an addictions counseling course. And I thought, I'll do that. I'll be a therapist. So I went along and I began to hear stuff that kind of rang a bell and Anyway, I, I kind of stopped drinking. It was more of a, I'm just going to see for a week and see how that goes. And um, after a few weeks, I felt much better uh, because when you, I'm highly allergic to alcohol, I'd be very hungover for days after a binge. And um, I, I, I really, and I went to uh, 12 step fellowships. And from there it just this sort of information began to seep in and I really understood that it was a spiritual problem that I was suffering from and that alcohol really was a manifestation of that and that was that was sort of how I that's how I got sober and started this journey well just to make sure I understand what you mean by that what do you mean that it was a spiritual problem what was your spiritual problem well I this started before the problem wasn't alcohol before I even started drinking. It was what was inside of me. I just didn't, I didn't feel good enough. I didn't feel like my spirit, who I was inside that inner voice, that inner life that we have felt very dark and very difficult. And I lived in a culture that offered an anesthetic to that internal pain. So when I stopped drinking, the stopping drinking bit was only really the very tip of the iceberg. I mean, the stopping drinking bit is essential because you need to have clarity and uh, balance. But then I realized that that kind of dark, crushed spirit inside of me was still there, even though I wasn't drinking, and that I then needed to do work on that. And it was you know, for me, it was the 12 steps was the, you know, their ancient spiritual wisdom, but the, and it was a whole bunch of other things, you know, meditation, therapy, workshops, mm -hmm. having boundaries. So that what I always talk about with sobriety is we return to ourselves. I, the, the reason that I felt that way was because I was disconnected from who I really was. And the journey of sobriety is returning to yourself. Now, let's say someone's listening right now, mm -hmm. and they're either reflecting on their own relationship with alcohol, or they're reflecting on a family member or someone they know, a friend, and they're wondering, does this person have a drinking problem? Do I have a drinking problem? Am I just a social drinker? How do you help people sort that out? You know, that's. I'm glad you asked that because it's a really common question. And there's lots of quizzes and things you can do, but I have a really simple way of answering that. I mean, the first thing is people who don't have a problem with alcohol don't ever think about it. So they're not Googling things or even answering that question, to, asking that question to themselves. So people who have um, 
a, a problem with alcohol, they do four things. They drink, they think about drinking, they think about not drinking, and they recover from drinking. So that's like the first indication is that is the thinking about not drinking is a it's a clue. So people who don't struggle with alcohol, they think about alcohol in the same way that I think about sandwiches. So I might think, um, oh, I'll have a sandwich at lunch today. That'll be nice and eat my sandwich. And then tomorrow I might have a bowl of soup and the next day I might have a salad. And then at the weekend, I might be at a party and a plate of sandwiches goes by. And I think, oh, I'll have a couple of those. That's lovely. And then a bit later on, the plate goes by again. I'm like, no, I'm good. That's literally how much I think about sandwiches. Like that's as much space in my head that sandwiches take up. So if you are thinking about alcohol more than I'm thinking about sandwiches, it's a clue that, that something is up there. So um, that's kind of like usually how I answer that. It's, it's really how much space are you renting into your head? And are you arguing with yourself? Many of my clients have an almost daily argument with themselves. Am I going to drink today? I shouldn't drink today. Am I drinking too much? Maybe I'll just have one glass. One glass of wine would be fine. No, maybe that's it. Maybe I need to. It's that constant argument takes up a lot of time and energy. So if, if people recognize themselves in that, it's a clue that maybe this is something you need to look at. Okay. So let's just say someone does recognize themselves in that, but they're thinking, I don't need to be totally sober. I just need to drink a little bit less. How do you know the difference? How does someone in their own experience know the difference between those two possible paths? Um, another great question. So for me, it's about the cost. It's always about a cost-benefit analysis. So that's what I do with most of my clients is we just look at the cost of your drinking. So the first thing is money. Um, and it can be, um, you know, it's how much we spend on alcohol, but it's also associated costs. So it might be taxis, take out food, missed opportunities. Let's not forget associated healthcare costs because alcohol is highly toxic. So we look at money and we kind of do a rough guesstimate of how much they spend on their alcohol career per year. Then we look at, and this is the much bigger one, is time. How much time do you spend arguing with yourself about whether to drink, drinking, thinking about not drinking and recovering from drinking? Because we can get money back. We can't get time back. And, and for me, that was a big one. I If I drank... I would nearly always throw up and I would nearly always either be in bed the next day or very subpar. So it stole a lot of time from me. And those are two big things. And then we look at, you know, for instance, if you're a parent, you know, how much time does it take away from your kids, um, from the things that you want to do that make you happy? But then the real cost for me is what is the impact on your relationships on your dignity, on your integrity, and your growth. And those were really huge for me. Like I, on the outside, I, I, I've never, you know, I had a career, I never been arrested or had a DUI, but the internal cost for me was very high. Um, I wasn't, it was, you know, there was a big cost to my integrity, all of that kind of stuff. So once we've done that, really, it's just a simpler question of, are you getting a good return on your investment? You know, it's so interesting because I've talked to so many people about personal growth and spiritual practice, and I've never heard anyone use the cost-benefit analysis, applying it to our behavior. And as someone who spends a lot of time having business discussions and 
using that kind of thinking in business. I've never heard it applied to personal growth. I think that's really interesting. Thank you. And really what my message is, and this is the message of the book and, and everything that I want to say is the reason that people struggle with alcohol and really struggle with the idea of not drinking, like you said, like, what if I like just need to cut down a bit? The reason that people think that way is we are culturally very invested in the belief that alcohol is the best vehicle to the land of fun, excitement, belonging, connection, relaxing, rewarding yourself, romance and sex. So people will intellectually know that alcohol's not great for them. It's not, you know, it's quite toxic, et cetera, et cetera. And that, that you, you know, they may be drinking too much. But emotionally, what we feel like is we're giving up entrance to that land. And who wants to do that? That sounds horrible. And that's why people have this battle with themselves. And, and that's the first place most people go to. I don't want to stop. I just need to cut down. Just need to cut down. And the reason that they believe that is because, and I believe this at 27, is we believe if we don't drink alcohol, we can't go to that land. And that's that's completely false. You write in the book, and I thought this was so interesting. I'm on a mission to create a world where not drinking alcohol is like being gluten-free. And you introduce this term, alcohol-free. Like somebody, you know, you go out to dinner and somebody says, I'm gluten-free. And maybe people ask, like, huh, why are you gluten-free? And they go, mm. oh, because it's not good for my health or, you yeah. know, and that's kind of like the end and everybody goes on. And that's just so interesting to me that you came up with that as a comparison. It's definitely not like that now. And as someone who is on this mission to shift the cultural norms what, what's needed for us to go from where we are today to that, hey, I'm alcohol free, like I'm gluten free? What do we need to do to get there? Yeah, and that's where I want to get to. You know, it's it's funny, just as an aside, if you are gluten free, generally, people might go, oh, why is that? Whatever. And it's just move on. But nobody will come up to you and go, go on, have a bread roll. Just have one bread roll. What? Right? Like, the, <laughs> like, if you say you don't drink, I don't really yeah. get it now. But when I was younger, people would be like, right, but go on, just to have one, just to have one. It's the weekend. Right. Um, and it's because people believe that what I'm saying is, I, I'm not, that what they're hearing is not that I don't drink. What they're hearing is I'm volunteering to never have fun again. And they take it upon themselves to, to believe that, that, that they want me to have fun and alcohol is the best way to have fun. So to get to where we want to, to this place, my real mission is to, um, I want, it's basically the emperor's new clothes. We, we um, sure you can have fun and excitement and belonging and connection when you drink alcohol, but there is always a cost. There is a cost to that. And that is often obscured in our culture. If you look at how drinking is represented in TV shows and movies, unless it's like a specific story about an alcoholic, you'll see lots of characters having a glass or two of wine, but you never see them having a headache the next morning or being a bit, you know, short with their kids or or um being a bit like leaving work early because they don't feel well you don't see the consequences so there's always a cost when we drink and the biggest thing is what I want to smash to pieces is the belief that you can't get to the land of fun excitement belonging connection etc sober because you can when I was 27 and I stopped drinking 
I 100% believed I was never going to have fun again. I was never going to get laid again. I was never going to wear lipstick. I was never going to go dancing. Like my life would be just very dull and quiet. And I wasn't happy about that, but I accepted it because I ha I just wanted peace. I, the, I wanted the panic attacks and the anxiety to stop. Imagine within a year, I'm beginning to discover that everything I believed about sobriety was wrong. And I always said, I've been sober 21 and a half years now. I always say to people, if this wasn't fun, if this wasn't exciting and expansive and amazing, I'd have been drunk 20 years ago. Yeah. But let's say to somebody who, you know, my friends all drink, that's what we do on Friday mm -hmm. night, on Saturday night. Those are the norms. This is going to be a big disruption in my current life. So I have to create a whole new life to do this. What do you say to somebody like who's in that situation? Yeah, it's definitely an adjustment. And I want to say once what, something that's be very clear about this. When people first stop drinking those first few months, that's not how it is long term. For sure, we can't stop drinking and do everything exactly the same way as we did before, you know, do the Friday night, but sit there with the Diet Coke. We have to change. We have to make some changes. We have to, I mean, the number one thing is to have a community, find a community of sober people, um, people who know what you're going through, people in real life that you can hang out with on a Friday night and do something, you know, there's a whole, amazingly, there's a, there's millions of things you can do on a Friday night that don't involve alcohol. That's all about, that's perception and a belief system. So we have to make some lifestyle changes. Don't do it on your own. Find a community and, and work a program. Then I will, t I tell people down the road, I still do, you know, I, when I was in my late twenties, I was, I was going to nightclubs. I wanted to go dancing and flirt with boys. Uh, I didn't do that in my, the first six months of my sobriety because it didn't feel safe and it felt very weird. But after a year or so, my sobriety felt really solid and I did all of those things. I just did them sober. Okay. Now you mentioned in your own journey that AA was an important part of your recovery and you write in soberful that willpower is pretty useless when it comes to quitting drinking. And I mentioned AA because I think many people are familiar mm -hmm. with uh, the principles of AA where you're going to give uh, your life to a higher power in some way. There's this mm -hmm. notion of surrender. But to be honest with you, I, I haven't been clear. Don't I need a lot of willpower to quit drinking if drinking's my problem? Doesn't it take a lot of willpower? No, not at all. That willpower has nothing to do with it because willpower is a muscle. And, you know, what happens is, um, and this is a common pattern with my clients, they wake up and they decide, oh my gosh, that's it. I don't, pff, don't want to drink again. That was awful. It's like been awful for a while. I don't, I'm absolutely 100%. And that day they really mean it. They are 100% mean it. And they will go on with their day or their week and they'll they'll not drink and, and, and they'll feel much better and that will feel great. And and a couple of things happen. One of the things that happens is when we, th that's a call to what I call a call to growth. That day when we wake up and we decide we want to change something is something inside of us is calling us to grow into something else. So what happens every time we grow is the the, the voice of the ego that we have inside of us will, um, it, its primary purpose is to keep us safe. And it believes if we just keep everything familiar, and don't make any changes, you will be safe and I will be doing my job. So we, at some point, we'll meet resistance where the, the that voice kicks in in our heads and says things like, oh, you're not that bad. You know, it's not like you're getting arrested. 
You just need to avoid liquor. You need to just stick to wine. Two classes. That's perfectly reasonable. So and so with sure. the road. She, she is. And so that voice, uh, when that voice kicks in, it's followed with very difficult emotions and this just relentless voice in our head. So it doesn't matter. Like th then we're reverting to willpower. And that's the voice of the ego is always stronger. So that's why we need a community and a, and a program to help us through those times when we're getting all of these messages that it wasn't that bad and uh, we can drink and it will be fine. And, and I, again, people don't decide to do stop drinking if it's good. It was that bad. That's why people decide that they want to stop in the first place. But our ego is so good at convincing us that nothing needs to change. Everything needs to stay the same. And then the other thing that happens is if we haven't worked a program, which is learn how to have boundaries and balance and deal with resentments and all that kind of stuff, there'll come a day when we have a really bad day and we're resentful and um, someone will say, do you want to come to, uh, you know, cocktail hour? And all of our willpower goes out of the window because of how we feel inside. We know alcohol will change that in a second. So willpower is really, you know, I see this a lot in my groups, like I need to be stronger and it's not it's not about being stronger. It's that you just don't have the right skills. It's not about strength. It's just that you don't have the skills and the support. Mm -hmm. Now, you wrote the book Soberful to provide people mm. with guidelines, to provide a, a type of program. If you work the Soberful book, it's like working a program. And you have these things that you call five pillars of sustainable sobriety. And I'd love to know, first of all, how you came up with the five pillars and then Go ahead and introduce them to our listeners. Yes, thank you. So, um, so I the, the twelve steps of AA are a program, and and that's not. We need to have lots of different options. That that for a long time it was the only path to sobriety, and it doesn't fit for everybody. Everybody needs different pathways and options, and we have much more of those now. And I, in the last, I want to say five to seven years, there's been a real explosion online of people being much more public about getting sober and their journeys and all that kind of stuff. And um, I see lots of people stopping drinking, like deciding that's what they want to do, um, feeling very, lots of identification and inspiration with all these stories, and then stopping and really floundering and being lost, really not like understanding like I'm three months sober why don't I feel better and like why do I still so as a therapist with my background in psychotherapy and treatment centers and that kind of stuff th there's just certain things we have to know how to do and often um, for most of us we needed to learn these things in childhood they needed to either be taught to us or role modeled to us. And for most of us, they weren't because our parents didn't know and had their own stuff going on. One of the first things is boundaries. Like I didn't know what boundaries were. I didn't know they were a thing, let alone how to have boundaries. But when I learned about boundaries, they're simply life-changing. They, mm -hmm. they keep the good in, they keep the bad out. It's to, your no means no and your yes means yes. I was a chronic people pleaser. I just wanted everyone to like me. So I always agreed with you and said I'd do it. And then I'd end up in these great big tangles and I'd get really like stressed about the thing I'd agreed to do that I didn't want to do. And, and, and that feeling is uncomfortable. So I drink. And so I wanted to put together in a really kind of digestible way, you need to stop drinking. And then this is the stuff that you need, that they're the tools. These are the things you need to have. And I call them personal development for sober people. And I always explain, 
this isn't for people just with an alcohol problem. This is for everybody has to do personal development. Everybody has to work on the development of who they are. We all have to do that. We all have to self-reflect. People with an alcohol problem have gotten this amazing wake-up call that kind of pushes them into this personal development. So I wanted to create something that very succinctly um, uh, communicated what what that work was, and that's the five pillars. Mm -hmm. So this is... um, I call them pillars because what we want is sustainable sobriety. I don't think about alcohol and I don't think about not drinking. I just get on with my life. And when you first stop drinking, it feels like all you're doing is thinking about alcohol or not drinking. We don't want to live like that. We want to, We don't want to stay away from a drink one day at a time. We just want to live our expansive lives. So if we work the five pillars, they just hold up our sobriety and we don't have to think about it. So instead of focusing on drinking or not drinking, we just focus on the personal development work. So the five pillars are movement, connection, balance, process, and growth. And um, I'll I'll break those down. So um, movement is two things. The first number one thing, and this is perhaps where most people start, is simply moving your body. We know from the research that exercise moving your body is the best thing you can do to take care of your mental health. It's uh, the best treatment for depression. Um, So I, when I work with people, that's number one, I need you to be moving your body. And I don't, don't, you don't have to be a CrossFit champion, just Mm -hmm. walk 30 minutes every day. And I guarantee after a month, you will begin to feel better. Your mood will feel better. I just want want to pause there for one moment. I thought it was so striking that you started there. I had no idea, you know, when I went to look at what the five pillars were and you started with physical movement, mostly because anybody can do it. Like anybody can actually do this thing and it is life-changing. So I I just thought that was brilliant, Veronica, just to tell you. (laughs) Thank you. And that's where I did start there because it's sometimes, I mean, people come to sobriety in very different places and sometimes it feels overwhelming and huge. And that's, you know, we start like 15 minutes, walk around the block for 15 minutes. I've had people who have been housebound and they're like, well, I can't do that. I'm like, you know what? On YouTube, there's actually whole exercise programs for people in wheelchairs. So put that on, put some music that you love and do that. And it will still, we, we don't, we're not moving to, it's not about fitness. That's kind of a secondary gain. It's about the um, elevation in our serotonin. That's right. the number one reason. You also write in this section of Soberful, alcohol is like a neurological sledgehammer. That really got my attention. So there's something that's been happening. If we've been drinking for a while, we need this new correction, neurological correction that comes from movement. I thought that was really important. Yeah, I think that's actually a quote, actually, from, um, I can't remember her first name. The last name is Gristle. But um, yes, when I was going into the research, it's incredible how badly alcohol messes up with our neuropathways. And amazingly, alcohol after um, exercise, after we've had an alcohol problem, actually heals the brain. It mm-hmm. begins to actually heal the, some of the damage that we've done to it. I mean, it has so many bonuses. Um, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, it's a, a must. We, we have mm-hmm. to do that. So I wanted to, um, but I also, movement is, a, there's another part to that pillar, and it's about being purposeful. 
about what we move towards and what we move away from. I always felt like I was a little boat on the ocean with no rudder, just kind of, you know, I didn't, I was just this way, that way. I was not purposeful about moving towards my goals or being in an in alignment with my values. So the other layer of movement is about really, it's about purposefulness. It's about being more awake and alert to what do I want to move towards and what do I want to move away from? Um, and those are things that we can start, you know, if it's like I want to move away from drinking and the drinking culture and I want to move towards a healthier lifestyle. It's not about like tomorrow I'm going to complete a marathon. It's about tomorrow I'm going to walk for 15 minutes and move towards that. So it's, it's very, I, I hope it's something that everybody feels that they could begin to do. Um, so the second pillar is connection. And I'm sure you're familiar with Brene Brown's work on, on uh, connection and vulnerability. Uh, human connection is essential. We can't live without it. And there's three different types of connection. We need intimate connection, people who really know our souls. We need friends and we need to be part of a community. And I give an example in the book because um, we need to have intimate connection. But that doesn't mean necessarily a romantic relationship, you know, because lots of people don't have that. Um, I, my uh, mother-in-law has lived, you would love them they are so amazing, has lived with her two best friends. One sadly has passed away, uh, but they lived together for almost 40 years. And they just came to a point in their life where they were, they didn't, they weren't interested in a romantic relationship with a man, but they wanted to have a family. And it's, it's platonic and they are loving and growing. And, and it's just been the most amazing example of an alternative mm -hmm. way to have that intimate connection. We need to have people who know our souls. Um, otherwise, we, we to not be known, to not be seen, there's something inside of us that kind of begins to curl up and die. Now, of course, there's only one road to connection, and that's through vulnerability. And that's the bit that scares us. Um, that's the bit where Brenny Brown's work has been so useful to us in understanding that it's a strength and that we gain so much through taking the risk of being vulnerable so that we can truly connect with people in a way that has been missing. Um, I, loneliness is a real defining characteristic of an alcohol problem and, and mm -hmm. just feeling separate and disconnected. And of course it starts with ourselves, the connection, the reconnecting with who I really am. And now, uh, now let, let me ask you a question about this, Veronica, to mm -hmm. the person, to the lonely person who might be listening who mm. says, this is actually, this really strikes me. And when I think of developing these pillars, I'm not sure who's going to be with me, how I'm going to be connected mm. to other people. I'm sure you get this from people. Yeah. Where do I start? Where do I start? Yeah. Um, so the place, to, if lots of people come to sobriety where they don't feel they have any friends, that they've alienated their family members, that they feel very alone. And the first place to start is a, is a support group. Um, there's all kinds of support groups now. Of course, there's AA, but there's also um, there's Buddhist uh, uh, methods of recovery. There's uh, She Recovers is a large organization. There's lots of online groups now. We have options. So start with a support group because also you don't have to pretend or hide in a support group for an alcohol problem. You know, you're not. It's not like the PTA where you have to pretend everything's going well. 
if you're there, people know you are struggling. And that's a big step to not have to pretend everything's all right. Yeah. So starting with a support group is is the place to start for a lot of people. It's where I started because I was in that position. I didn't have any friends or family. So, um, so yeah, that's the connection pillar is, is um, understanding that uh, we, we have to have connection and that's something we have to work at because people are not going to come and knock on their doors and go, hi, you seem like a really fun, interesting person. Do you want to come over? We have to be consistent. We have to show up. We have to take risks to be vulnerable and, and it takes time, but it's, it's essential for us to do. Um, then the next pillar is balance. Whatever the question, balance is always the answer. And it's about balancing and meeting our evolving needs as our circumstances change. Um, initially, when people first get sober, I, I start with the halts, hungry, angry, lonely, tired, stressed. Um, and I also look at stress, well, stress, boredom and hormones. These are all triggers that can make us feel very out of balance. Um, and, uh, if we feel out of balance for too long, the first indication will feel, we'll feel uncomfortable in our own skins. And when we feel un uncomfortable in our own skins, our brains look for an anesthetic. How can I change this? How can I change this? How can I change this as quickly as possible? So we need to look at our balance so that our brains don't look for a way to, to take away the discomfort of being out of balance. And then as we go on, you know, um, our circumstances change, you know, when we move, we leave friends behind, we, we have to start over again and building those connections. When we have kids, when, when our kids leave home, when we, what, we all have changing circumstances. And when our circumstances, I mean, the best example, I think was last year, you know, when we had the pandemic, all of a sudden, bang, our, so many of us were out of balance, we couldn't go to the gym, we couldn't, all of the ways that we just stay in balance and stay connected were gone and that but the need for balance didn't leave we just had to begin to find different ways so it's it's about being aware that um balance is an art it's something we practice for the rest of our lives it, it's being aware of our changing needs as we grow and age and change and meeting those needs so we can stay in balance are we Am I not exercising enough? Am I working too much? Am I not getting a good night's sleep? Am I not eating right? I just haven't spent time with my best friend for a long time. It's all of those things make us feel balanced. Now, let me ask you a question about this, mm -hmm. Veronica, because I, I think that most people intuitively know, you know, if I spend too much time being hungry or tired mm -hmm. or whatever, mm -hmm. that, you know, I'm going to get off track and who knows what's going to happen next. If it's not alcohol, it's going to be, you know, an entire chocolate pie or something's going to happen, you know, I'm going to yell at someone, but there isn't always that self regard and care to return to ourselves and give ourselves what we need to come back into this word that you're using balance. Mm. Like we don't regard ourselves enough we don't care for ourselves. We don't. We just keep going down the, mm. you know. So how do you help people make that bridge? And, oh, you know, and I care for myself. So I'm going to stop and feed myself properly. Mm. Uh, that's a great question. And I want to say that's why we have the connection pillar. They really do fit together and work like cogs in a wheel. Because uh, if we are connected, then we can be around people who who can reflect back to us and say, 
you just look exhausted. Like, why are you, you know, we need people around us. We've all done it. I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. And and I know we're both people who are sure. hugely invested in personal development. I mean, I know I've done it. And I sometimes will need someone around me to say, Veronica, slow down, or you need to rest, or you need to do this or whatever. So the connection and balance part really fit together uh, in that way, in that if we can build community, we can have people who can, and also, you know, when we're beginning to, sometimes what happens to me is I don't feel right within myself. I don't, something's not sitting right, but I don't know what it is. And because I have people around me that I've invested in with these relationships, I can go to them and say, I talk about what's going on. And then at the end of it, I'm like, oh, it's that. <laughs> That's what it is. You know, just having uh, mentors and, and those relationships where we can begin to just sound things out. And then we, we we don't know what we know until we say it out loud often. So that's that's how we can then discover mm -hmm. I'm out of balance. Right. Very helpful. OK, let's go on to the fourth pillar. So the fourth pillar is process. And as a therapist, like I love the whole idea of process. We are all in processes all the time. Processes are beginning, middling and ending all the time. Uh, getting sober is a process. So process is really about understanding how our past shows up in our present. It, and, and that's unavoidable for all of us. And really, it's really about our early years, about understanding that I have formed beliefs about myself and the world that may not be helpful. And when I get sober and I start this process work, I can begin to uncover some of these beliefs that I didn't even know were there that I can now see have been really shaping the outcomes in my life. It's about understanding I have wounds from childhood that I've been carrying around that constantly will show up repeatedly in my romantic relationships or friendships. It's about understanding why do I feel like that when someone says that? Why do I have that kind of emotional response when X, Y, and Z happens? It's really about knowing oneself revealing ourselves to ourselves it's a it's a constant lifelong process of of understanding who we are i find it very delicious um but it can feel very scary at first i you know people say i don't want to rake up the past i don't want to. it's not about raking up the past your past shows up in your present every day it's about understanding why that is and where we can put some of that stuff down. So process work is, um, it can be with a therapist, with a coach, in a program, reading a self-help book, journaling, meditation. There's many, many ways that we can embark on and, and different things fit at different times where we can begin to understand ourselves better and leave the parts behind that no longer serve us. I wanted to ask you a question. In this part of Soberful, your new book, you write, I can't emphasize enough how important it is to be trauma-informed in our recovery from an alcohol problem. What aspect of being trauma-informed do you think is important, significant for the person who's moving into recovery? Um, I, we, we know so much more about trauma now, but it's still, I think, relatively a new thing. Um, I, I emphasize that if you're going to work with a practitioner of any kind, make sure that they're trauma informed, because so many of us have 
trauma from our childhood. So many of us carry that. Um, and we a lot of people are completely unaware that that's a trauma. So being working in an environment or with a practitioner who can spot that quite early, that behavior, that response, that indicates to me that there might be some trauma there. So that you can work in a very in a way that's needed to uh, support and, and help that trauma. Um, otherwise, you know, if we don't acknowledge or work on that trauma, we can often we can often make it worse. You know, it's one of the most important. I don't think anybody escapes having some kind of trauma, even if it's a little thing. Um, the most, I think, one of the best things we can do for another human being is to get that op- out in the open in a way that is safe and comfortable and really validate it, really validate what happened to you really mattered. It really mattered and it really shaped you. We don't want to stay in the trauma. We want to be able to eventually move on. And it's different for everybody. You know, it, it's a process. But really recognizing, I think, I want to say in the last 10 to 15 years that trauma is at the root of a lot of alcohol and drug problems. You know, you know I wanted to ask you uh, related to that. I've known people who have stopped drinking. They've decided, mm-hmm. you know, okay, no more. Mm-hmm. But it seems to me, at least from the outside, you know, these are not necessarily people I've known that well, that they haven't really gotten to the root of what was causing them to drink. So they're no longer drinking alcohol, but perhaps they're using other substances like caffeine Mm -hmm. or sugar Mm -hmm. or even exercise can be taken to such an extreme that it becomes an addictive kind of thing. And so I'm curious about that in your experience. What is it that makes sure people really get to the root of what's going on? Not just like, I'm soberful now, but I'm still an addict. Yeah, so there's a couple of things there. That That's why we have to do the process work, because if we don't do the process work and understanding how we feel and healing that kind of stuff, our brains just look for another way to, to fix our feelings. So we're not drinking, but maybe we're smoking cannabis or maybe we're a workaholic or gambling or whatever. So that's cross addiction, where we will just, our brains will look for other ways external methods to deal with internal feelings, whereas the work is to to resolve the internal feelings. Now, it's not, I don't believe it's necessary to find the root cause. Lots of people don't know. Some people do, and it's very obvious. They had, you know, abusive parents or there was a traumatic episode. Um, But for lots of people, it's not clear. It's not necessary to know what the root cause is, but it is absolutely important to resolve the stuff that's showing up in your present. So it could be, maybe that's the root cause, maybe it's a secondary thing, who knows? But if you do have past trauma, hurts and wounds that keep showing up in your present behavior, that's the stuff that we have to work on. And I wanna add about the trauma, uh, Dr. Gabor Matty really explains this well, because I do have clients who say, I don't, really like my childhood was great my parents were really loving like I don't there's nothing really that happened and that's that's common too and one of the things that I've discovered when we're children we have two uh, and Dr. Mate talks about this we have two vital needs we have the need for um, uh, attachment which we know about and we have the need for authenticity and what can happen and this is certainly what happened to me is 
as children, we know that that we have to be attached to our caregivers because we'll die without them. What happens as we're growing is sometimes my authenticity needs compromise my attachment needs and I have to choose attachment. So a good example of this would be, for example, if you grew up um, LGBTQ in a family where that wasn't going to be acceptable, but and they loved you and they adored you and you you had wonderful parents, but that was something that you knew quite young would not be okay. That's your authentic self having to be compromised for your attachment needs to be met. And that is a traumatic experience. Does that make sense? It does make sense. Yeah. So often, often that is, is what I, and again, you don't have to find this, but often we do in the work that, that the trauma was somewhere your authentic self was suppressed or compromised or pushed down for your attachment needs to be met. So it, it seems to me that spending a lot of time in process work and also this fifth pillar of sustainable sobriety, which you call the pillar of growth, process work, growth work, this is what we adults do for the whole rest of our lives, yeah? Yeah, and I, so I want to clarify that because um, sure, when I please. when I first, I remember, I don't know, six months sober and I said to someone with long-term sobriety, like, how long do I have to kind of do this stuff, go to meetings and write this stuff? And, blah, blah. and they went, oh, forever, it never ends. And I was like, oh, God, <laughs> I thought that sounded awful. So it's a paradox. Um, personal growth never ends because we are always growing and changing as human beings. And, and so this work never ends. But I want people to know there's a destination. Soberful, what, what it's about is getting to a place where we feel comfortable in our own skins and have appropriate emotional responses to events. So I'm- No, hold, I'm, hold on, tell me what that means, appropriate emotional okay. responses, yeah. So appropriate emotional responses to events. So uh, for example, when I was three years sober, this was my emotional rock bottom. I was dating a guy for six weeks. It was fairly brief and casual. And that relationship ended as it always did, because that was my pattern at the time. And I went into a black suicidal hole of despair. That is an inappropriate emotional response to that event because what that did is it just opened up my childhood abandonment wound and my father, blah, 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 blah. So it's appropriate to feel upset and hurt and cry over that. My response was unbalanced because it was to do with all of my baggage. So, um, so I'll give you another example. So I used to be the kind of person who would go into the office in the morning and I'd be like, oh, hi, Tammy, how was your weekend? And if you were on the computer and went, yeah, it was fine. I would think, oh, my God, what did I do something wrong? Did I upset her? Or was it that email? And I would spend all day worrying about your response. Like, does yeah. she not like me? That's an inappropriate emotional response. Now, because I've done this work on myself, I would go in and be like, oh, hi, which weekend? And if you were like, yeah, it was fine. I'd be like, I wonder what's wrong with her. And I'd go about my day. And those two things seem very insignificant, but they're massive. Yeah. They're massive. Having appropriate emotional responses to the things that happen around me. Um, and I didn't have that when I had all of this baggage. I was when I didn't have boundaries, when I didn't when I was a people pleaser, when I didn't understand why I had all these feelings that just seemed very unmanageable. So the destination in sobriety is to feel comfortable in our own skins, to be reconnected with ourselves in, a, in alignment with our values, moving towards what really matters to us. 
um, and have appropriate emotional responses by doing the, the process work. But also no. And and I, I mean, I'm sure you're the same. I love like, oh, send me on a good workshop or give me a good like I, I, I've been in and out of therapy for 20 years whenever I feel like I need it because I love the growth. I love the growth that comes from it. I love what's revealed to me. I love how it expands me in my life. I, I love all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. The fourth pillar of sustainable sobriety is this process work. And then you separate out growth work as a fifth pillar. And I want to talk a little bit more about that, but also just to understand why did you distinguish? I notice I feel a little confused. Process work, growth work, what's the difference? Well, they're, they're very related. I kind of separated them. I mean, they're all, they all overlap. And like I said, if you imagine like they're cogs mm -hmm. and they all kind of turn together, like yeah. day, day one of stopping drinking is a call to growth. And so they all do work together. They're not individual things. But I wanted to kind of, I put it as the fifth pillar because it's really the joy and the reward of a soberful life is the call to growth. Now, you're always going to get the ego and the resistance, but this is what we're here to do is to grow. I know that the people listening who may be struggling with an alcohol problem, they didn't come here to ask, to spend their energy arguing with themselves about whether they're going to have a glass of wine or not tonight. That's not the main event. The main event is becoming who we're meant to be. So growth, growth is the point. It's the point. You know, I always say to people, like, when I was 20 years sober, I was, it was really amazing. Like, I, I, my life expanded. But I don't, at 21 and a half years sober, I don't want to go back to 20 years sober, because that was smaller than where I am now. And when I'm 23 years sober, it's going to be the same and et cetera, and et cetera. So growth is the main event. It's our purpose is to listen to that voice inside of us that is calling us to grow into what we're capable of being. And I wanted to kind of have that, again, it's not really, you don't, you don't really do pillars one, two, three, four, five in that order. Right. But I put it there as like, I want to know, like, like there's tons of good stuff on this journey. Right. No, I think I understand now. So the process part is more kind of working through what's come in your past so that you can have more freedom in the present, but the growth work is more what you're being called to yes. moving forward. Yeah. I think I get it. Now, this was one of my favorite uh, quotes from Soberful. Under this uh, section of the pillar of growth, you write, we have to grow or we die. And if we grow, then we're going to encounter fear because growing always means encountering new experiences and new experiences can bring fear. We just can't avoid growing. Becoming more, growing is our purpose and destiny. Our challenge is to continue to grow while managing the fear. And the question I have for you is how do you manage fear when it comes up? And can you give us a specific example? Yeah. Um gosh, this is what I mean about having the tools and the support. I used to, I used to always get calls to growth, like when, uh, you know, oh, I'd love to do that, or I'd love to whatever. And then the fear would kick in. And I would sabotage myself, because I would hear this voice in my head saying, you can't do that, you'll mess up, you'll fail, you'll, you'll look stupid. And I used to think that was the voice of truth. So I would just sabotage whatever it was and not do it and stay in this like holding pattern. 
So once I had the tools, so the first thing is, I get the call to growth and then I, I expect resistance and fear to show up. So once I know what's happening, I know this process, I know that how this happens. And I'll, I'll give you an example. For me, it always shows up with um, a formal education. I'm dyslexic and writing is really hard for me. And I would was always getting messages that I was stupid and I knew I wasn't stupid, but I didn't know why I did stupid things. So whenever I, like when I started my degree or whenever I start a, a, an academic course, I get a massive amount of fear and panic. And I get that, that voice in my head saying, you're going to look like an idiot. They're going to realize you're stupid. You're going to hand in your essay and they're going to laugh. You can't do this. Because that's how I felt throughout all my uh, school years. So, um, and then I would sabotage myself. I would leave or not do it. So now I know that that's going to happen. So first of all, I know it's going to happen. That takes the weight of it down. You know, it decreases how strong that feels because I know it's part of my process that I always go through if I start at some kind of academic course. The second thing is once I've acknowledged that's what's happening, I can reframe it. So for me, I'd be like, you, you know, I panic. I don't, I don't know what they're talking about. I don't understand it. Now I reframe it is, of course you don't know. You're on week one of a course to learn something new. If you knew it, you'd be teaching it. It's totally okay to be confused and to not know what they're going on about in the classroom. Trust that by the time you get to week 12 or whatever, it will be clearer and you can ask, you know, you can make an appointment to speak to the tutor, all of that kind of stuff. So just reframing it in, it's totally fine to hit, sit here and not know anything and to just let the learning happen and trust tomorrow you'll, learn, you'll know a bit more and the next week you'll know a bit more and that by the end of it, you'll know, you know, you'll be able to, and because, because I also can now have experience, I can think, well, I did that course and I didn't know anything and now it would be easy. I could go back and do it and standing on my head. So it's just those simple tools in knowing what's actually happening. And then what I do, one thing I do if it gets really intense is I acknowledge what's happening and then I just do the next right thing. So I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna go down that rabbit hole. I'm gonna make a cup of tea. That's the next right thing. Then I'm gonna reply to the email. Then I'm gonna walk the dog. And then the next right thing and the next right thing and the next right thing just leads me to where I need to go. And those tools are very simple, but they're massively effective. Mm -hmm. Now, you've used this very uh, compelling phrase a couple of times, a call to growth. Mm -hmm. And somebody might be listening who's feeling, you know, I think I'm being called to grow. And either I'm experiencing that call to drink less or maybe to give up alcohol altogether. Maybe, maybe just as they're listening, they're experiencing that as a call to growth. And I'm wondering, you know, sometimes you hear about people needing to hit bottom in order to make a huge change of committing to sobriety. But someone could hear that call to growth without hitting bottom. And I'm, I'm curious what you think about that. Is it a myth that you have to hit bottom? I think that, that we've kind of grown as a, a, I think we've grown past that now. I think that that's a very kind of old way of looking at um, recovery from an addiction problem, I think that what we're, what I'm noticing is people realizing much, much, much earlier that their drinking doesn't serve them. 
Um, and again, it's on the outside. All my clients, everything, you know, they went to college, they have a nice house, they go on holiday. It, it, on the outside, everything looks okay. It's about how people feel on the inside. And I really think it, we've changed a lot in the last at least decade. And a lot of it has been because people are publicly sharing their stories. And people are identifying and, and seeing that, gosh, that's not like a rock bottom homeless, you know, that, that's kind of what we think a problem is, you know, you have to be homeless, you have to be arrested 20 times. And it's not necessarily the case that it's more of an internal situation than uh, it shows up internally before it shows up externally. So um, I, I want to say as a community, I hope, I think we're moving away from that. And every rock bottom, the whole definition of that is very subjective. You know, for what is a rock bottom for one person is completely different for another person. I, I hope we're raising that bottom up so people are realizing much earlier that alcohol is no longer their friend. Mm -hmm. And then finally, Veronica, you write in the book, sobriety is my superpower. And I thought, why is it her superpower? Ooh, I'll tell you why. Because... Um, you get you get your bandwidth back. So when you drink, no matter how much you drink, even if it's very small, there is a cost. There is a cost to that. Maybe it's just a headache the next day. And that's, you know, for other people, it's much more severe. But when you struggle with an alcohol problem, you you give up some of your bandwidth. And bandwidth is simply energy and space in your head to think thoughts. So if I'm arguing with myself about whether to have a drink or not today, or should I, what do other people think? Maybe I should cut it out. Should I do dry January? I'm expanding energy on that. And maybe it's 20, 30% of my bandwidth is being sacrificed to that argument or to that, like going around in circles, thinking about drinking, thinking about not drinking. You can do loads with 70% bandwidth. You can get a PhD, a career, raise kids. But what you can't do is emotionally grow in the way that you are capable of because you don't have the bandwidth. So when you get sober, A, you have full access to your bandwidth and I never have a cost to my fun or my excitement or my belonging or my connection the way that other people do and that's a superpower. I've been speaking with Veronica Valley. She's the author of the beautiful new book called Soberful, Uncover a Sustainable, Fulfilling Life Free of Alcohol. Thank you so much for the conversation, Veronica, and all of your good work. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening to Insights at the Edge. You can read a full transcript of today's interview at soundstrue.com forward slash podcast. And if you're interested, hit the subscribe button in your podcast app. And also, if you feel inspired, head to iTunes and leave Insights at the Edge a review. I love getting your feedback, being in connection with you, and learning how we can continue to evolve and improve our program. Working together, I believe, we can create a kinder and wiser world. Soundstrue.com. Waking up the world.